Hello, thank you for coming to this week's podcast of Breaking the Third Wall Through Music. Um, I'm Tara, the host, and this week I have a colleague of mine from Crane, and now he's out in the real world. Um, Jacob, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Jacob De Palma. I uh, went to Crane with Tara, a wonderful person, great friend, and talented musician. Um, I received a BA in music education on the band track and a saxophone performance certificate under Dr. Casey Grev. Hello, Dr. Grev, if you're listening. Um, and now I hold an orchestra director position at the Utica, uh, Utica City School District, where I teach at four different elementary schools. Um, I'm here because I'm talking a little bit about uh, what it's like to be a musician with OCD and anxiety. Um, I've had these since I was in sixth grade. They have led to some very, very heavy thoughts and feelings that it was very tough to explore during my grade school years. Um, I got to a point where I was also bullied by my colleagues in grade school and had had thoughts uh, concerning ending my own life. Um, and I was in therapy for a few years, I believe it was five years, um, exploring this. And that's when my OCD and anxiety had really started to flare up. I'd been put on a medication and everything, but before any of this happened, I'd shown no signs. I'd been a completely just normal, happy-go-lucky kid, and it started in sixth grade. Um, <clears throat> but it was such a great feeling when, you know, to have this behind me, you know, to have it. Uh, ninth grade, I believe, it was when we finally stopped seeing a therapist. And I remember one of the biggest things uh, that sticks with me is that my mom and I just stood there um in the on um, in the middle of our living room floor like hugging each other and crying because we'd got through what had been the roughest patch of my life and it continues to have been the roughest patch of my life and it really remains just a um like a benchmark for me you've gotten through a lot worse <clears throat> so whatever you're facing now is something you can easily get through and I found that to be a really helpful theme uh, throughout my life. Just for people who are listening, can you explain exactly what OCD is and maybe what type <clears throat> of OCD you have? Um, of course, so OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, people with OCD might find themselves having the urges to do like certain small things, for example, repeated hand washing is a common example used in the medical field. Uh, maybe certain vocal or physical tics. <clears throat> Pardon me, that's my coffee. Um, <clears throat> repeated vocal or physical tics, uh, like say eye blinking, like vocal tics, barking, stuff like that, that they <clears throat> really, it almost hurts them to not follow through on that urge. Um, <clears throat> And it's something that is usually treated with therapy and medication, but it also might look to someone on the outside. It might look unsettling to someone on the outside. Um, 
it's a big stigma around the subject because this person is doing something different than the norm. And unfortunately, in today's society of fear of the unknown leads to a lot of leads to a lot of um, abuse and ridicule by uh, people who might not know what's happening behind the scenes, so to speak. And anxiety, uh, anxiety is just the uh, whatever stress someone might feel on a regular basis is amplified. There's a chemical imbalance in the brain that amplifies any regular stress you might be feeling, any daytime stress like, I've got to get this project done by X date. Anxiety, the feeling of doom, you're not going to get it done. You're, uh, what if X, what if Y, what if Z? You think of all of these different scenarios and try and plan for them all. Your brain is essentially in hyperactivity mode. Um, you try to account for every scenario and stress yourself out physically, mentally, and emotionally trying to do so. And especially with any trauma, like I was talking about my previous trauma in school, um, can make that even worse. Any thoughts you might have associated with that, it could amplify that as well. Which is where... Um, Actually, I had a recently, um, I had a recent bout uh, with my anxiety when I used to work um, as a direct support professional for those with dis uh, for those with disabilities. Uh, I had a coworker who was rather um, toxic, uh, made me feel like I wasn't doing anything, made me feel worthless, and those feelings started to resurface. Um, but I am in therapy now. I am working with. A wonderful therapist based out of Syracuse. Hello, if you're listening. Um, and have started to resolve those issues. But it really does. It serves as a retrospective as to. Okay, you dealt with it when you were a child. What is it going to be like when you're an adult? Now I am fully cognitively developed. I am emotionally developed. I'm an adult at this point. So how does that battle change? And it can be very exhausting. Something, everything in your life could be going perfectly fine. And yet you feel this dread for some reason, this sadness, this high level of emotion that you don't really know how to explain. But I would also like to add that I've had such a wonderful support system. Uh, my family, my friends from both home and college, my boyfriend of a year, we recently had our year anniversary, um, have all really been such tremendous sources of inspiration for me. They were there for me, with the exception of my boyfriend. I hadn't met him. Uh, we had, uh, in sixth grade when this happened, they were all there for me. They banded together, and now they've banded together. I have more support than I did then, and we're getting through it. We're getting through it. Um, as far as education is concerned, uh, I found it hard to focus on my studies when this happened because the only thing I could think about was what's going on in my brain? Why am I having these intense feelings? And going back to when I was in school, all of my teachers were so, so very uh, 
understanding, accepting. They exempted me from my final exams because there was a family emergency. And, you know, I was the good kid in school. I was, um, you know, studied hard, didn't talk back. I was the band geek, obviously, because that's where I ended up in my <laughs> in my career. Um, so, I mean, especially also to the faculty of Solvay High School, I, I very much consider them to be one of my supports, uh, one of my biggest support um, areas and uh, my family. I'll always be loyal to Solvay for what they did to help me through that and what they did for my profession. Um, I know that uh, what I wanted to do as a teacher now, understanding the different mental health challenges that some students might face is be a safe space. And that is more important to me than any subject matter I could ever teach. Yes, I'm here to teach you beginning violin, beginning viola or cello or bass or what have you. If I move on to a band position in the future, I'm there to teach. But if you're having a bad time, I might be the only friendly face that you see. Some people's lives at home, some students' lives at home have left me completely flabbergasted as I as I have gone throughout my career, whether it's observations, student teaching, or um, again, my first year as a teacher. There's been so much I've learned in this four months that I've been a teacher. And you know, my friends at Utica have been so welcoming and helping me realize that, is that with these people's home lives and varying socioeconomic statuses, you, know, you as a teacher, you really do need to be there as a safe space to be willing to talk about anything that a student might want to talk about. The ability to have a student come to you, confide in you, is one of the greatest feelings in the world. And I hope to be that benchmark. I hope to be that positive source for my students. Through this so far, like, what have you found are appropriate ways to react to students who may come to you for mental health reasons, maybe a disability and other assorted things? And what things do you deem not appropriate reactions to students? Um, as far as the um, inappropriate, I did have a situation um, in high school where I was going to be, well, I was, open about what I was going to do in, uh, in college. I've known since fourth grade, but one of my teachers actually broke a HIPAA law concerning my anxiety and OCD. I'm sure um, I did not have like an IEP or a 504, at least to my knowledge, um, but it was documented in the past that I've had suicidal thoughts and you know, intense anxiety, intense OCD. Um, but my, uh, one of my teachers had broken the HIPAA law saying specifically because of my conditions, I should not be going to college for music education, rather music performance. And that since I doubled, I should be going on clarinet instead of saxophone. Because the saxophone, uh, the saxophone 
audition landscape for colleges is very, very uh, competitive. As if the clarinet ones were not, but um, speaking to a clarinetist. Um, and uh, that just taught me again, like one of the things, one of the ways to not approach a student with mental health, uh, with any sort of mental health challenge, no matter what it is. Um, as far as the appropriate, I've found that empathy is always the best route. I was talking to my choral tech professor at Crane, Dr. Jeffrey Frankham, um, during one of the classes that we'd had, and he was talking about how basically what I just said, empathy is the best way to go. Um, he approached a student who had been acting out in class in chorus rehearsal and asked him a simple question, is everything okay? You know, you seemed, you know, a little bit distracted today. Is everything okay? And the student opened up to him and told him what's going on. And Dr. Franklin was completely blown out of the water. He did not have any inkling, any, any portion of a clue as to what this, what the student deals with outside of course, outside of their core subjects outside of school in general. And since then he took this kid under his wing and, you know, showed him that he cared. And the student had behaved for him, his academic performance had improved, his socio-emotional -emo socio um, socio life had improved because one teacher showed him that student that they cared. And I know um, I've seen the, I've seen this podcast before and usually it's a question for the end. What kind of advice would you give to educators dealing with students? And it, I say dealing, it isn't dealing, helping these students. And that would be my advice to help these students to be a voice, no matter what they want to talk about, whether it's mental health, whether it is a different disability or issue that they're having to be there and treat that like the part of your job. It is the most important part of your job. Kind of off of that, it's also like, regardless of whether the student is quote unquote mentally ill, which I don't really like that term, Neither do I. or they, they have a disability or issues with mental health, um, the student should be being treated the same in those aspects of empathy, just like any student in the classroom would need help if they're struggling. So would someone with a disability or mental health issues. And I've seen, I've seen that not only in school, but at work before I got this job as an orchestra director for Utica, I worked at Arkavanandaga. Um, where we assist individuals with various disabilities or IDDs um, live and we help them live the best lives that they can, free of abuse, neglect, or harm. That was our mission statement. And it was one that I was very, um, very on board with because I understand, you know, again, I, I live my life with empathy. You can understand the emotional 
mental and physical challenges that someone might go through. Um, and I worked at a residential area, a residential house for individuals with IDD. And, and you do learn to, you know, you learn to do anything that you can to support the support these people and make them, you know, or uh, help them have a better life, a life that they're happy with, where they can make their own decisions and live their own conscious lives. Um, between that experience, and I did find working for that agency to be a rewarding experience, um, just because it did, it reinforced the idea of empathy in me. And in the educational setting, you know, that applied itself when, you know, I have students now that um, need varying levels of support. I find myself more equipped to give that support, to take that look back and say, what exactly is this student struggling with? And how can I help them? What concepts or what processes seem the most difficult for each student? And how can I guide them to that understanding? Through, I like to use the uh, zone of proximal development theory for a lot of my, uh, for almost all of my educational uh, philosophy is that there is a zone that kids can do alone, but they might find easy and boring. There's a zone in the middle, which is where you'd want to be, is where the students can do things with instructor scaffolding, instructor help. And then there's the zone so far above their current ability that it would frustrate and discourage. I need to find a way if someone it works both ways too. If the zone is too high, I need to figure out strategies to bring that down to where, yes, it's still a challenge. It's an appropriate challenge, but with instructor help, it is possible. Or if someone is, oh, we did this before last year and I've gotten a lot of that um, through like, we did this a lot last year through your predecessor. Um, how do I get them to engage in more higher level critical thinking. Uh, and that is one of the biggest challenge and honestly, one of the biggest puzzles for me. And I find it fun to think about these students and the different ways in which they learn. So I know um, it is, uh, it can be a challenge, but if you put that time toward every one of your students, and it may seem like a lot, especially for classroom teachers, general music teachers, I have a huge amount of respect for having around 800 students having to make all those calls and think about all those students where I have only about 80. Um, and learning during a pandemic as well, actually, helps and kind of hurts certain things with education, especially instrumental. Uh, currently, Utica School District is all remote. Um, and regardless of whether or not we would have gone hybrid, we um, instrumental teachers were to teach virtually, which I understand. There are certain things, for example, a like camera angle. If I were to show a violin 
to the camera. This is the string you're to play. You're going to play on. You know, can you find that string for me and play it? Um, they might with the hold inverted direction from the camera get that hunt for it. And you know, okay, if we follow this string up, you'll see this tuning peg. You know, that's how you know which string is the D string. Follow this string up. This is how you know it's the A string. Um, it's brought up a lot of a lot of new challenges, and I've heard multiple stories of students getting very discouraged and um, just not wanting to learn through all of this. And that's the part where all you can do is all you can do is offer your support. You can say, "I understand this isn't ideal, but." I'll be there to help you every step of the way. It's that extra layer of students right now are going through more than they ever have before. And when it comes to workloads, I usually only do an assignment a week. There have been some weeks where I haven't assigned any at all as far as written work, um, where you try not to overload the students. And because if you overload the students, they'd be less receptive. It would be harder for them to learn than it already is learning through a camera. In a normal environment, especially with instrumental music, um, you know, you would be able to see everything that the student does. For example, you know, get that elbow off your stomach. You know, bring your elbow up so that the violin is kind of pointing diagonally. Or, you know, cello players, let's see where that's... Uh, that stop is in the ground, or let's see how high your uh, see how high your end pin is, and see actually where the strings are supposed to be when they're sitting down. I haven't taught any basses yet, but that's also the same debate, especially since these children are younger and smaller um, than my orchestra tech class at the Crane School of Music because. Um, they're not full-grown adults. Um, <clears throat> so with that, I find being now more than ever, being that mental support <clears throat> is more important than ever. So I have a slot after school where I can, uh, where I offer students the opportunity to come in and ask questions if they want to ask questions, if they just want to talk and see what's going on, or for you know for makeup lessons. <clears throat> and try and make time for everyone. No, and I think that that's really important. Um, and I think that that's something that really we should all be doing regardless of what level of education you're at, because even whether you're at an adolescent age of education or a master's, degree, level of education, whatever level of education you're in, we all need space to walk away from our screen, but also to interact with others. Mm -hmm. And that is the you know, dangerous part. Everyone in the world right now wishes that they could go over to their friend's house, give them a hug. Once this pandemic is over, I'm probably going to be giving a lot of hugs because I'm a hugger. Um, that's uh, who I am. But even outside of this pandemic situation, this global situation, um, 
again, I find empathy is the biggest and best thing that you can practice as a teacher because again, when you're the only face, uh, friendly face a student sees when you might not know if the student has to raise their younger brother or sister because their parents might not be in the picture or uh, they don't know when their next meal is going to come from. I've heard horrible stories from my school health class uh, <clears throat> about food insecure students uh, and things like that. Or if they're dealing with something like I dealt with in sixth grade, you do not know. You truly do not know. You have no way of knowing unless you reach out. And I think that this is also where it brings up that when the student is struggling and um, I think, I say this from personal experience, um, I think giving the student space and creating a different standard for them is really important because you can't put them at the same standard as somebody else if they don't even have all of the tools, same tools as somebody else to meet a standard, right? Of course, and that's one of those things that, uh, I remember in music and special ed, there was this picture that Dr. Wanamaker showed us um, about equity versus equality. The three kids watching a baseball game, one student is short, one student is average height, one student is tall. The short and average height students have trouble seeing the game. And the tall person can see just fine, they're taller than the fence. But... Uh, then there was an extra photo that gave each of them one box. The other kids, the shorter kid couldn't see, the middle kid could, the taller kid didn't need it. And with equity, shorter kid had two, uh, two boxes and could see, the average kid had one box and could see, and the tall student didn't get anything because they could see before. That whole situation really epitomizes the ability of not having one standard or the ability, the concept of not having one single standard for everyone. And on a separate, uh, in a separate ball of wax, that's why I don't agree with standardized testing because tell, being told you don't meet the standard and then not giving them anything to help them meet that standard, uh, quote unquote, is not the way that students or teachers should be measured. Um, <clears throat> so it goes doubly for individuals suffering with either mental health issues or various uh, IDD, um, giving them what they need is of the utmost importance because otherwise they're not going to measure up because they don't have the tools. If you give them the tools if you give anyone the tools that they need to succeed, regardless of ability, then they will succeed. I believe everyone has the drive, the motivation, the will to succeed. The door, someone just needs to help them open the door. <clears throat> and that is, I mean, second only, second only to equity, or second only to uh, empathy, two different E words, apparently I'm not doing well today. <laughs> um, <clears throat> second only to empathy, it, 
is just giving students what they need. I definitely agree. And it's like, um, what a student needs is gonna look different for every student, which is why every standard for every student is going to be mm. different because they have different mm -hmm. needs. Um, which is why I also have never agreed with standardized testing. I've never agreed that, like, I understand that there should be a standard, but I think that the way that our standards should be set up is not, this is the standard and if the student doesn't do this, they just aren't doing what they're supposed to. It should be, this is the standard that we hold everybody at. And if they need extra supports in order to get to this standard, then we need to change the standard in a way that fits them. Exactly. And that's also where it goes to the state education standards as a whole that we, that we educators are supposed to use in lesson plans. Those standards are reachable by everyone regardless of ability, but we need to give those students that need the extra push, we need to give them what they need. Otherwise, they are not going to fit the standard. And you're not going to see accurate teacher or student effectiveness or productivity if the teacher can't give them what they need or if the student can't get what they need. It's one of those double-edged swords. We need to change our practice and we need to, <clears throat> we need to <clears throat> have these rough conversations to get educators on board with fixing this part of the education system, which in my opinion is broken. In my opinion, it belongs in a dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> it's broken, but not beyond repair. All we need is to keep through podcasts like this, through, uh, through just activism through the, uh, concerning this topic, getting this issue to the forefront of American education to the point where we have to talk about, we have to bring this issue to the highest of government officials so that we can, we can make change for good for the better. It just makes me think like, what kind of processes would be required probably to make these changes? We would probably have to get a lot of other educators on board. Um, we'd probably have to take it to the state level and supply a wide range of documents and other assorted things. We would probably have to even take it to the Supreme Court itself because that is where we get changes done. For example, the ADA, the PL9142, various different, uh, yes, Dr. Wanamaker, I still remember that law. Um, different um, legislations and <clears throat> legislations and uh, procedures written by educators, written by, by, uh, by those in special education who can vouch for what these students need instead of throwing out ideas under the wall and seeing what sticks. Now, the legislations I just mentioned have done a large amount of good for, for students with various levels of ability, but there's still room to improve from here.
The question is, how are we going to do it and when? When are we going to make our voices heard? <clears throat> I know, at least from what I've talked to with other people who have disabilities, because I have a lot of friends with people who are also individuals with disabilities. Um, there's a lot of people that are quite angry, regardless of whether they're at a young age or they're a full-grown adult. Um, there's a lot wrong with the laws and they're really outdated. Um, and a lot of them need to be very updated. Um, yeah, because I was talking to someone about that the other day and they were like, yeah, I know a lot of people who are moving because they're just so angry at these laws and other sort of things. And I'm like, well, then you, you got to stand up and fight for it. Like, you got to make change. Exactly. And going back to the um, about anxiety and OCD and mental um, and emotional um and I, I, I really don't like the word disorder or disability, anxiety disorder, OCD disorder. It's not a disorder. It is something in your brain that you cannot control. The wiring and chemical balances in your brain combine to make what, this, what is seen as this disorder. Um, there should be clauses in these laws for mental and emotional mental and emotional trauma individuals with mental and emotional again disorders i say that with a bad taste in my mouth the word disorder i um, i personally really i've been really like well i also have i have adhd and other sort of things so i really like saying non-neurotypical because yeah. it takes out the idea of the fact that i don't have a, a disorder or a disability i don't know if that's helpful that is true. And actually, on that topic, I remember watching this Netflix series that um, was really enlightening. It touched on the topic of autism very well. Uh, it's called Atypical. It's this boy named Sam uh, who goes through his life as a teenager and young adult through high school and college and tackles different issues that are very prevalent for individuals with autism. For example, uh, social interactions, uh, hyperfoci, um, relation, interper like I said, interpersonal relationships, work, and different anxieties that they might have, and the stigma that they face. It's definitely a provoking. It's a provoking series. It's meant to be a slice of life. It has its hints of comedy, but it is. A very touching series that I recommend anyone who is, uh, I recommend anyone who is skeptic about, who is a skeptic about these, wanting to change these laws or the sort of social justice and individuals with disabilities or non-neurotypical individuals uh, should watch. I think it would enlighten them to a lot. Kind of on this topic, it kind of reminded me. So yesterday on my group chat with people who, have, who I've had on the podcast, um, you know, my friends Tyler, Ethan, and Lauren, um, 
we were talking about how um i don't know if you know i believe she's a pop singer s s i a i think her name is saya saya or something like that i don't yes, know how familiar with her um but apparently um she had created this um movie or something that goes with an album but the issue is the fact that the main character is autistic but that's not the problem the problem is the fact that um it was not the woman who was being portrayed as autistic is actually not autistic and she is incorrectly portraying individuals with autism Mm -hmm. and so many people were are very upset about this um and she also collaborated with autism speaks which nothing against autism speaks it's just there's been a lot of not good things out of autism speaks and it's like Mm. things like that and not good representation and it also makes it hard for people with those disabilities regardless of the which talking about the social aspects of a disability this is an example um literally someone not with autism projecting autism incorrectly in social platforms it's almost i would almost be considered appropriation even though it's not for example a culture quote-unquote well you know even though there are individuals with disabilities that do identify very much with what uh with whatever they uh whatever they may face for example deaf culture um, there is a culture around autism. Um, I know because my boyfriend, Peter, who you've had on the podcast before, is uh, does have autism. Um, and media portrayal of any uh, what is considered a disability or any neurotypical uh, situation is a very sensitive thing. For example, um, anyone who knows me or is personal friends with me... Um, knows that I watch a show by Rebecca Sugar called Steven Universe. And it is a show about um, aliens that are they're gem holograms you know, saving the world from basically the evil gem overlords. Um, but aside from that plot, there are such layered characters within the show that multiple people have identified with there's a character named lapis lazuli voiced by the wonderful uh, voice actress jennifer paz um who has gone through a very traumatic experience um throughout the course of the show where she was emotionally abused and the reflection of her trauma how she deals with that how her character evolves throughout the series and into the epilogue series is a journey that now especially now knowing what i've gone through in my childhood and how i'm going through it now that i identify with very much there are other individuals in the show a character named peridot who and also uh smoky quartz come to think of it two different characters that um a lot of people with autism have actually identified with and the fact that they're all portrayed as good people good people that are going through various different challenges 
it brings a very positive message to anyone that may not be neurotypical, to anyone in general. It's an uplifting, an uplifting tale. I've seen a lot of fan communities gathered around these uh, characters, this Peridot, Lapis Lazuli, Smoky Quartz, various different characters in the show that they feel are theirs because they were portrayed in a manner that genuinely shows what these char- what these characters, what people with these issues may go through. When I say issues again, non- what these non-neurotypical individuals may go through. And honestly, if media could take a could take notes from this show, from that show, from Atypical, from series like that who are genuinely interested in displaying the plight of these individuals, then there would be a lot less stigma, in my opinion. It's it's like for me, it personally bothered me when my call when my colleagues and friends told me about that because I was like well here I am sitting here making a podcast trying to literally reverse those types of effects and here are people now putting more of them into the world you know and it's like they're being perpetuated when you're yes yeah it's it's like I'm trying to be like this is not okay you need to start it and just smack it but like you need to not do that you need to stop (laughs) (laughs) we need to go in a different direction now and we need correct portrayals of individuals with disabilities in general and if you want a correct portrayal talk to an individual with disabilities talk to a caretaker of an individual with disabilities they will not sugarcoat it they will tell you exactly what the struggles that this person may face are and show them the character of these individuals because they're a they're a person they're not a disability quote-unquote a condition a disorder and all of these harmful terms using person first language uh is important in these situations and also just thinking about these are human beings with emotions with ideas with values that you that and i say you as a general term that people need to take into account it's also like with things like the SIA whatever I don't want to say her name whatever it is um you know things like that is the issue is the fact that the individuals with this disability it's like you're trying to help but you're not helping it's like you're trying to put a band-aid on the wound but instead of putting a band-aid you accidentally drop salt into the wound and then it's harder to recover from it and then you have more things you have to deal with other than the bruise that you had because now there's salt poured into it you know what i mean exactly and it's it's adding fuel to the fire that we're trying to extinguish And again, that is why activism is important in this situation. Peaceful activism around this topic saying that we need reform and we need it now. Because, I mean, if we do not, if these individuals with various levels of ability do not fight 
if the people who care for them and care about them do not fight for them, then who will? And the answer is no one. We need to fight for... We need to fight for better legislation, especially in education, for these individuals. And that is a hill I'm willing to die on. No, and I agree. And it's like, I tell people all of the time, you know, my people go, oh my God, I really love your podcast. I'm glad that you started this. I'm like, glad you're doing these things. But it's also like, I don't really do these things for me. I do them so that other people can actually unsalt their wounds because it's like, I, it's just, it's just not appropriate to like, try to describe someone else's life for them especially if you don't have the thing that they have i just don't think it's appropriate regardless it's kind of like um i remember going to a seminar freshman year at potsdam about microaggressions concerning race and the presenter of that uh the presenter of that lecture dr lonell woods um had mentioned how some people tried to be fake about their support, how some people, um, you know, it's so great that you are being an advocate for, in his case, black musicians. You know, you are a wonderful black musician. I'm not a black musician. I am a musician. Just like you are not an autistic person, and I say that using the harmful language for a purpose or a person with autism. No, I am just a person with autism. I'm a person who happens to suffer from autism. I'm a person who happens to have OCD and anxiety. I'm not an anxious musician. I am a musician first. I'm a person first. And it's one of those things, as far as being a musician with anxiety, going back to what we were talking about a bit earlier on in the show. Um, being a musician with anxiety and especially OCD and having those urges to like repeat things, do things, it makes you quite the perfectionist. I am, uh, anyone who knows me uh, listening is probably nodding their heads right now going, yep. But um I like things to be perfect or as close to perfect as they can. Like I, uh, at one point in my college career, practiced seven hours that day. I didn't realize it, didn't take any breaks. Um, just went in on a Saturday when it was light out and went, uh, left crane when it was dark. Didn't even intend to do that, but <clears throat> repeating things, going over them, checking them over. You know, so that's why sometimes it's hard for me to find a work-life balance because there are things like this needs to get done. Like my grading needs to get done by Monday for the marking period. As we're approaching the second marking period over at the wonderful Utica City School District, I do mean genuinely wonderful. Hello, my Utica colleagues. Um, and, you know, it, it, it will weigh on you. It will eat at you. Why are you not working? Why are you not doing this yet? Why haven't you done this yet? And it makes it harder to sort of 
turn down, like turn that knob down. Okay, you've done a lot of work. Uh, sit down and watch TV for a little bit, or I'm also a video gamer. Uh, play some video games. Do some mind-numbing activity and turn your brain down. <clears throat> That's why actually a lot of people with anxiety have trouble falling asleep. Because, again, it's also been in studies people with quote-unquote higher intellect or people with anxiety-related conditions have trouble falling asleep. So I've used melatonin before, but once I got into the workforce, the amount of work and doing per day became my melatonin. Um, <laughs> um, I kid, but it can be a, debil a debilitating problem for some. It's uh, one of those things that you need to, <clears throat> you realize it is a quote unquote side effect or it is a part of having anxiety or OCD, but it's one of those things you need to learn how to deal with yourself. And it's something that full disclosure, I still, I still uh, struggle with. For example, I told you before we went on the air when we were, uh, you know, just talking as two friends rather than this interview setting. Um, yesterday, in order to fix some trouble that I had with grading, I ended up getting up early, a protein shake and a banana for breakfast, went out to work on a half hour drive to the point where I got there a half an hour early. Families, um, login contacts, you know, uh, consulting with my principals uh, to see what each of the four of them would like as far as grading what their advice would be. Talked to my mentor, got all of that done, taught a few lessons, and, you know, skipped lunch and went through basically working the entire time. There was not a time when the cog in my head yesterday wasn't turning. Uh, I came home, had dinner, I took a small break for dinner, watched a bit of TV, and then went right back to work to the point where I got all of my marketing period grades finished probably by around midnight this morning. And it's that sort of burst of hyper productivity that I've experienced either. I mean, firstly, it was because of the anxiety and because I want to get it done. I'm a perfectionist. I want to get it done right. I want to show my administrators and my higher ups that I am confident and competent in what I do. I want to represent myself well, my school well, you know, and basically show them what I've been working on for my entire life. But thinking of all of that puts that pressure on me. Thinking of all of that puts that pressure on me to the point that it can break you at times, it can inspire you at times. And you never know which one it's going to be. <clears throat> no, and as someone who also has anxiety, um, yeah, it can be really difficult, especially when you think of all these scenarios that aren't true and then you have to make it perfect so that it doesn't happen. <laughs> but then you've re already reminded yourself that it's going to happen and other assorted things. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like, it can be debilitating in a lot of ways, but also sometimes that like when you get so anxious that you end up getting so tired mm -hmm. that you just go to bed. <laughs> Cause you're like, I just tired me out. 
And the thing is, I know, like, now that I'm an adult, I understand how to regulate my anxiety, how to calm myself down. For example, I might talk to some of the people in the group chat that I have, uh, you know, from uh, the people I used to live with in Potsdam. Or think about my boyfriend, just take a deep breath, because, you know, they are a huge source now of comfort and an extra source of love and compassion that I did not have before. And truly, I don't think Peter knows how much they do mean to me, but that's beside the point. Um, that they, um, and by they, I mean these supports, these support systems, you know, you have to reach out to them. You have to, and sometimes it may seem exhaustive. I don't want to bother them. I don't want to do this or that. But when you get into that mode, sometimes, uh, you know, I feel like I just need to talk to someone or write it down or, you know, take notes of it for the next time I see my therapist. Um, it's, you know, or I also like when I get really wound up is when some of those not so pleasant thoughts start to come back. And I realize that, but sometimes it can also be hard to get out of that headspace and think, this is not you. This is just an intrusive thought. And I've had intrusive thoughts about me and then other people in my life, most likely out of caring because I care for everyone. Unless you're mean to me or have done me wrong or messed with my family because that is the type of person and type of values that I have, then I care about you. I care about some random person on the street. Say, I like your shirt today. As I walk, as I walk past them walking to Jernabi to get a coffee in the morning because you know, I like to make people feel good. I like to be a positive source of, I like to be a, I like to be a positive person. Before any of this happened in sixth grade, I prided myself on being a positive person. My grandmother always told me that life was about being a good person. And she always told me and my little brother, you are good people. And that is why we support you the way we do. My grandparents, my family is all very tight knit and have supported me in ways that I can't even fathom up to this day. Um, <clears throat> that's another thing I would say to educators, be positive. Even now, might be hard to be positive right now, but please do because the kids need to see that. Kids need to see that in a regular situation. And that'll help those who may be struggling with mental, uh, with mental health that might help them feel that much better. I'm having a really bad day today, but gee, Mr. De Palma made me laugh. What he said today was funny. You know, it's <clears throat> those interactions that I think in education and life, we need to take, we need to take more stock in. We're focused more as a society on the negative, but we need to celebrate the positive. <clears throat> For example, in my, our recital, I played a piece from Russell Peck that, um, not this may sound like I'm bragging and I'm sorry, I'm not, but um, <clears throat> it was a piece that <clears throat> my saxophone professor had said that would have been intimidating to me in my graduate studies. And you played in your undergrad. He was genuinely proud of me. I may, may have cracked a few altissimo notes on there, but looking back, it was still a wonderful, uh, wonderful performance. 
at least from others. I don't judge my own performances because I'm usually harder on myself. And that's also due to, you know, me being a perfectionist from anxiety. This needs to be perfect. I cracked five straight altissimo notes there. You weren't perfect. You didn't do enough work. But it's those, you know, um, it's those things. Anxiety has you, uh, anxiety can make it rough to take stock of what you've actually done as a person. The accomplishments you've made it makes you it makes it hard to feel good about them because you've always got that shadow of doubt kind of like a little storm cloud over your head that you know makes you think that makes you think yeah i did this but that doesn't matter now no but it was a fun experience you have you were recognized or, you know any awards or achievements you might have received you know even if even if it was far back as elementary school, writer of the month, you're recognized. It made you feel good, and that's a positive experience. Well, so emotionally, it can be very hard to see things for what they are. So as we're reaching the end of the podcast, because we're going on an hour now, Honestly, it didn't even feel like an hour. It did not um, really. <laughs> so we just talked talk about to you. good, good conversations. Um, is there any last words you want to say to? I know you've said a lot of words to educators, but do you want to say any words to maybe other people who are teachers, or maybe to other people with mental health issues, maybe people with anxiety and other disorders, maybe like a form of advice? Hmm. Uh, firstly, to uh, to other educators, please just please reach out. It may be an extra an extra log that you might need to do, or an extra phone call you might need to make during the day, and you might think to yourself, uh, you know, another thing to add to my list. But it can make a world of difference for a child. It can make a world of difference from elementary to university level because we're all human. And we all have emotions. That's something that we, that's something I've always been someone that thinks with the heart. That's someone, that's something that we don't think about. We see children. We see people who need to learn X, Y, and Z for a well-rounded education. They're just people. They're just younger than you. That's all. They have the same emotions. For, uh, for those who are going through uh, mental health troubles right now, Firstly, I'm sorry, and I know that it must be hard. I empathize with your plight. I do. And my grandmother always used to tell me, rest her soul, that things will always get better. No matter what happens, one day at a time, one step at a time, things will always get better. And I found through life that she's always been right. That one thing she said has always been right. That life is all about being a good person. And despite how you may feel, you might not feel like a good person at times, but you are. You've got to find the good in yourself. You've got to find the good in everything. And please do not be shy about seeking help. People say seeking help is a sign of weakness. They could not be more wrong. If I didn't seek help in sixth grade, then 
I might not be where I am today in life. And it's a very harrowing thing to think. You know, you, a few years down the road, if you haven't, if you did not seek help, you might think, you know, what, what could I have done? You know, what could I do to fix this? It's never too late. It's never too late. Seek help if you think you need it. And find your support system, no matter who it might be, whether it is family, friends, a significant other, a teacher, someone in your life. Find someone to lean on because everyone needs somebody. Everyone needs somebody to lean on. And you're not alone. There are, especially now with the advent of social media, you can find different groups on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, people dealing with the same things that you are. And even posting in that online forum, I'm part of a wonderful Discord server um, for various, um, or actually various people um, LG, in the LGBTQ community. Um, and they talk about different, uh, different topics and support each other through whatever they may be going through and it's wonderful. It really is. Find that support. Find your rock. I think that was really well said. And I actually have nothing to add to that because it was so well said. Basically took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> um, so thank you for coming on this week, Jacob. It was really nice to talk to you and have this conversation. Um, and learn more about you in general. Um, it was an honor. I really do applaud that you're doing this because these conversations, these conversations do need to be had. I've said that on Facebook in the days leading up to the podcast where I did a bit of shameless plugging that um, these conversations need to be had. These, these legislations need to be amended. These rules and stigmas need to be talked about so that we can all be better moving forward. I think that is the most important takeaway not only from this podcast the way i'm a huge fan i've watched i've listened to every episode um because it is it is important so i'm glad that i was able to hopefully i was able to do some good talking today to someone who maybe needs to hear what i have to say and if i do then again i believe in you and keep trying keep keep trucking things will get better i agree um so this is the conclusion of this week's podcast um next week i will be having a colleague and friend sophia right on so it's gonna be fun and make sure to tune in next week and have a great week everybody and a wonderful thanksgiving wear your masks yes please we can do this together yes have a good one